This is, yeah, it's very strange being able to hear myself. Yeah, we sound too crystal clear. Anyway, this is Brad Barricade, Elena's podcast. This is Nemo, your host. I use they, them pronouns. And today I was in a rehearsal room for the first time in six, seven, seven, eight months. Nine months. Jeez. <laughs> um, yeah, the last time we did rehearsals was in February. Yeah, it was interesting. It's technically not breaking the rules because it's working. Mm. So it's a really cool play that we're R&Ding called Ametarasu. And it's like really cool, like martial arts and the Japanese gods and stuff and it's really cool but it's like we're in this like huge church and we're just like doing martial arts and taiko <laughs> and it's like I don't know whether like this is essential work <laughs> <laughs> it feels too fun to be like this is this is exactly what the government wants us to do which is to work but I'm having a good time and I know they don't want me to be having a good time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I spent a lot of today like watching people do really cool stunts. Like these three women just like uh, doing fucking kick flips and shit to like in a church. <laughs> in a church. It was really cool and the lighting was really beautiful. And like yeah, like the the it's not a stained glass window, but you know when you have the like the stone they kind of look like flowers and like the little panes of glass and uh, the stone yeah, yeah. I think. yeah with that as a background uh. it's really cool but yeah definitely was like hmm, interesting there's still a pandemic going on outside. <laughs> meanwhile outside <laughs> yeah literally oh amazing i'm stevie your today primary researcher she her pronouns my work wasn't that exciting. It's just the same. Same as it ever was. <laughs> it's the lead up. Well, yeah, let's date this. It's the lead up to Halloween, which is usually the busiest latex time. I've made so many Barbie outfits <laughs> in the last week. I 100% misheard you and thought you said Blobby as in Mr. <laughs> Mr. Blobby. Blobby. And I was like, Stevie, oh my God, what? <laughs> if had been you know I would have sent you pictures of them <laughs> that's partially where my shock came from because I was like how have you not told us about them I've been saving it for this moment live on air <laughs> I, I'm like almost certain a latex Mr Blobby outfit exists like I don't oh, need to definitely. look it up I know it in my soul yeah. and like part of me is like make it sexy but you know Mr Blobby is just oh, raw me. sexual <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get the words out of my mouth. <laughs> Talking of raw sexual magnetism. Yeah, well, uh, um, God, I, I literally only listened to the last episode like three days ago, and then my brain completely blanked on our favourite bit. Oh, the humble lips. Yeah, our sexy humble-lipped boy is back. <laughs> um, and also... Your hot boy is mentioned. Javert? Yeah, he did. He yeah, <laughs> that wasn't a trick. I was like, oh god, like there's a side character that I mentioned once or something that I've completely forgotten. <laughs> so we are on book four, the Gorbo T 
tenement. Oh, wow. We're already at the Gobo tenement. Interesting. Oh, I love that you, it was like really stuck out enough that you, you knew that one. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a staple. Ah, <laughs> that wasn't the feeling I had. <laughs> uh, so our first chapter is just some scene setting. Um, mm-hmm. We're like zooming in on this one house on this one street. It is in like kind of, it comes across like a very decrepit. <laughs> you kind of get the like, so this is the house. Is it house 50 or is it 52? Above the door said number 50. The door below replied, no, number 52. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of Very got... important world building. <laughs> There's like a lot of that, this chapter. Um, just I feel like Victor Hugo went to one of his friends' house and pressed the wrong doorbell and now he's like, <laughs> got this like um, petty thing where he's like, wow, you know. Actually, I did ring the right one. It's just that it's labelled really badly. So <laughs> I believe that so hard. <laughs> so this house who just doesn't know its own identity. <laughs> <laughs> Say this house isn't like the centre of... God, every metaphor just completely fled me. If it's in the middle of a clock, <laughs> he kind of points... You know where all the numbers around that middle of the clock would be, yeah. and we get a description of like every street. Like it's not just like Gladys said compass, but it he talks about more than just four street directions from this one house. Every direction is a kind of bit of a rubbish area, uh, and like the neighborhood. It's like very industrial, it's very run down. He says run down quite a few times, I've underlined them and they're all very close together. The door of a hovel, a deserted place that's bleaker by day than any cemetery. <laughs> that So it's basically this house is near like one of the streets in one of the many ways that this house is part of some rich, dirty history. It feels like... Uh, was like when people were being led to the guillotine uh they would walk down this one street um it's also very close to la salpetria which if you listen to our special on women (laughs) (laughs) uh, one of the ones i've done on women (laughs) was well as in this chapter, Victor Hugo put it. So it's near the La Salpetria and the Bicetre, which, in other words, between the madness of women and the madness of men. So they were the, <laughs> they were the um, kind of hospitals where women or and the other men would be like forcibly incarcerated if they were accused for any reason of being mad. Like, so... Mm. Uh, as we sort of said in this, uh, I wish I could remember which version it was. You know, women could be put away there because they spoke back to their husband one time. I think it was the special we did just before Fontaine, or just when we got to Fontaine. I think it was a woman. I think it was like special Fontaine or something like that. Because I remember either. <laughs> I remember solidly it was either after or before <laughs> we 
when we were talking about Fontaine and Javert, when, when um, Javert gave her the sentence and we were talking about how easy it would be for Fontaine to have been like forcibly incarcerated. Yeah, yeah I think it was like women and health and sex working. I'm not sure what the title of the whole episode was, but when I saw the name, I was like, oh, I recognize that. That doesn't happen often. And then I did double check. <laughs> I didn't want to just trust my memory on this one. Clearly, it is not with me very well today. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those are very nearby. Yeah, we're basically just getting a lot about this house. Um, like the shutters are falling apart, uh, which pose more threat to passersby than any protection for the occupants. Mm-mm. The shutters mm. on the windows. This is so. He's so. He just hates poor people so much. <laughs> he does. He's like, oh yeah. So basically, this is like where all the criminals and like where all of the like people who should be forcibly incarcerated because they're definitely mad and <laughs> that's where they all live. So that's why it's really gross and grotty. Yeah. Because he's like, he'll say that, and then he kind of is like, oh, but you know, it's still bad now. It's still bad now. But you know, it it is a little bit gentrified now, and you don't get the feeling that he likes that either. <laughs> he was like, look at this horrible place. Oh, they're trying to make it. They're trying to do it up. Look at this horrible, done up place. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, a line I did like about this place. Um. An interesting and picturesque feature of this type of abode is the enormous size of the spiders. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, <sighs> because the big spiders know when there's so much food going around, Big Hugo, like, are there little flies? I don't know what is happening. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying with it, but it, I actually laughed reading it. Um, I mean the Tenardiers are spiders and the people behind those um, fucking what's it called shutters are spiders yeah and there was the line about Cosette being a spider in uh, Cosette is a fly in servitude to a spider Mm, so mm. yes I think you're (laughs) right (laughs) maybe that interestingly Sorry, you go. No, you go. I'm going to say something dumb. I was also going to... I mean, (laughs) interestingly, that Cosette was, you know, when she had her little knife and she was, like, cutting the wings off of flies, like, dissecting them. Oh, yeah. Interesting that she is the fly caught in the spider's web, but also, like, cutting her own wings off. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know whether that he did that on purpose. (laughs) I don't know. Because that would be a lot to unpack. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> she didn't choose this life. No. It's not like she was, like, not doing enough that she would, like, put yourself up by your bootstraps, Cosette. <laughs> <laughs> You're eight years old. Get a job. Except you don't have one. <laughs> Get a second job. <laughs> okay, well, the, that I don't think that was silly. What I was going to say was that this... I thought humorous line about the enormous size of the spiders. Maybe <laughs> the writers of the musical were like, ah ha ha ha. Based on this line, clearly Victor Hugo meant 
through this spider metaphor and motif that this line is kind of humorous. And so clearly the Tenardiers are meant to be <laughs> humorous. <laughs> than we ever were we didn't think as hard as they did it was mm-hmm. here the whole time mm-hmm. stevie that is very much it's 11 37 the day before i need to like i'm supposed to submit this essay at midnight and i still need 1000 words what the <laughs> fuck can i write come to me anytime i'm full of these <laughs> and, and you're in luck, so is Victor Hugo. <laughs> uh, I don't fully know what this adds to it, but uh, this Gorbo house is called this because some um, lawyers lived there. There's like a little aside of, you know, that wasn't his original name, but everyone made fun of him for his real name, so he had to go to the king and ask to get his name changed, but the king would only let him change one letter. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to the house. <laughs> Anyway, it sounds exactly like how trans people <laughs> have to jump through loops. <laughs> you also had to beg a king after some bishops were first begging the king for something else, and the king found them so hilarious because they put the two bishops put shoes on the naked feet of a woman in the court. <laughs> what? I wasn't going to mention that part of the chapter. <laughs> because it's the same as you needing to add a thousand words before dissertation. Sometimes you're like, did Victor Hugo just need to add this out? No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't. Why is he writing this? Why does he sound like he is? I, I don't even know. Like, what are you doing, Victor Hugo? <laughs> well, anyway, enough about those uh, naked feet. <laughs> enough fetish for one day yeah in fact i won't explain it further you can all read the chapter if you really want to know what was going on there oh no i hate i hate the words foot fetish strong agree i need to turn that page away i can't look at the words bare feet anymore yeah we're still this is like what four pages still just talking about this house number 50 to 52 victor hugo kind of coming for people within his many many descriptions of all the different streets each as bad as the last from a shopkeeping and bourgeois society that shrank from the death penalty daring neither to abolish it within magnanimity nor to uphold it with authority i don't understand the sentence (laughs) even if i read you the full sentence because there's a lot of dashes in it i like read it over and was like i know he's really saying something One more time. So the full thing is he's like, oh, a few houses down from this, blah, 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 there's some trees. There's a scaffolding that's being hidden by some by those trees from a shopkeeping and bourgeois society that shrank from the death penalty, daring neither to abolish it with magnanimity nor to uphold it with authority. Okay, so the scaffolding is the guillotine, right? Guillotine. And Mm. it's being hidden. And so the society that claimed that they didn't want to have the death penalty anymore, but but never really opposed it, they just kind of went, "Mm, yeah, it's bad. Somebody should do something about it. So 
the guillotine is still there but hidden behind a tree. That made it make so much more sense. I was reading scaffold <laughs> as in like actual scaffolding. <laughs> so for me, I was really like, that last sentence of this paragraph is kind of a bit punchy, Victor Hugo, but like, what? <laughs> yeah, there are just these like, builders and then the death penalty comes in. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Victor Hugo's like, either be 100% on board or 100% out, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because he he didn't want the death penalty. He wanted it abolished, but he, yeah, he's imagining walking past a little street corner, looking in and seeing that the, the memory of the guillotine is still there and being like, oh, these fucking, like, Parisians, they should either abolish it outright and, like, get rid of the scaffolding or claim it as your own and mm. put it on proud display. Uh-huh. To, to, to hide it is to, like, be disingenuous. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. I cannot believe that <laughs> I, my brain was able to do that. I'm proud <laughs> of you. I can. Wrong, but... <laughs> no, that feels, that feels right. He had in that earlier in that paragraph, that was the one where he was talking about how this is the street that under the Empire and the Restoration, those sentenced to death came back into Paris on the day of their execution. So that actually that was very much set up for me and my brain was just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But this is why we're reading with friends. Yeah, exactly. So that we can pass a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Between us, this podcast gets a C (laughs) minus. This really is the like uh, one brain cell passed between two people <laughs> podcast. It's maybe half a brain cell passed between two people at this point. And it's still more of a brain cell than Victor Hugo has, so fuck you. Well, he goes straight from that of being like, either own it or abolish this. Anyway, is there anything more oppressive? to the heart than symmetry <laughs> and I and I quote the grim dreariness of right angles <laughs> symmetry is boredom and boredom is the very foundation of grief despair yawns is it possible Nemo to imagine something more terrible than a hell of suffering and that is a hell of boredom See, you know, you and I being like, oh, the musical should have respected Victor Hugo's words more because there's this, like, really traumatic thing and the description of child abuse is really poignant and, you know, the Thenardier shouldn't be made the comic relief. You know who should be made the comic relief? It's fucking Victor Hugo (laughs) and his love of hate of symmetry. Absolutely. Hatred. (laughs) Boredom is worse worse than suffering. You heard it here first. Yeah, Cosette, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Go and look at some fucking corners. Some <laughs> they right don't know what grief is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a pretty meaty paragraph. This uh, he does not like these parallel rows of trees and straight-edged buildings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hmm. Is that because? these boulevards were made because of anti-protest 
measures. Uh, so they, they widened all of the streets in Paris because after the French Revolution, um, the king decided that he didn't want streets that were close, so you couldn't build a barricade anymore. Mm. So it might be not just a hate of symmetry. <laughs> God, I can't believe we get we done kind of Victor Hugo and then have to be like, oh, I guess maybe. Well, no, because he does talk about how the streets are getting widened later on in this very same chapter. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't... I don't think he super alluded to that being the reason. He's kind of like, oh, the more you use a street the wider it becomes. Okay. Before, yeah, there's even, <laughs> before there's even, like, foot traffic, the cobbles will lay themselves in preparation, like that kind of thing, he says. Okay, so it's more about the urbanification of a place that he wants to be. Like, like he is like, Paris is big enough for the people who should be in Paris we shouldn't make it bigger for all these fucking tourists that are going to come in. Uh, <laughs> Paris should be Paris. Yeah, that is going to be further backed up in this very chapter. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, oh yeah, and also the, you know, the barricade stuff and the protests and, you know, that that's bad as well. Uh, and also that is actually what I meant in the first place, not just the tourist stuff. <laughs> when I went off about the frigid symmetry, um, he, well... The translation uses the word frigid. What I really meant was the suffering of the people, of course. Mm, We all know that's what I care about most. Well, because Paris is its people, so... Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the grief of the architecture is the grief of the Parisian people. Oh, well, so kind of you to bring up architecture. (laughs) No unevenness of terrain. No architectural quirk. No irregularity. It was frigid, featureless, a hideous hole. (laughs) (laughs) When was... This was before Notre Dame, right? Um, Or after? So, I don't have the real answer. My heart says that this is after. Notre Dame de Paris. Yeah, because I was thinking... Because we know that he... Victor Hugo, the man, loves architecture... (laughs) And wrote the uh, Notre Dame de Paris mostly to be like, we should really save the architecture. Yeah. Uh, 1831. So Notre Dame is first. So we just never stopped loving architecture. Yeah. And comparing it to the suffering and the plight of people. Yeah. Guess so. I do. It's like, okay, we uh, we are at this point where we're like, okay, I can see what you're doing, Victor Hugo, but it's just not good. I wish we could do it better, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, what's what's come to this little area? It's railway station. And that spells the death of suburb and the birth of a town. <laughs> so it literally is the, like... This play, this area, there used to be cottages, but you know, then people come here, and I guess that the city has to expand. And Never mind that I'm people. <laughs> Literally. Victor Hugo's not people. You're right. He is the voice of God. <laughs> That's going to come up as a theme so hard in just one moment. 
I can't believe I'm calling these so well. <laughs> so anyway, chapter two. Um, okay, so what I am enjoying about this translation is that every now and again there's a little asterisk and then a little explanation of why a choice has been made. So this chapter is titled A Nest for Two Birds of a Different Feather, which then explains that in French it's Nipo, Hippo et Fauvet, uh, which literally means nest for owl and warbler. Mm, and that uh, the French connotation of for owl is like a reclusive person. So in English, you know, like a lone wolf. Mm. Um, and an old deserted house may be referred to as an, an owl's nest. Uh, translated from French, and then a fauvet is a delicate little songbird, which is an apt description of Cosette, also carrying <laughs> suggestions of not being part of human society, fauve meaning wild. So he's pun Birdsoners. What did you say? Birdsoners. Birdsoners. <laughs> as soon as he said they're not part of human society, <laughs> I was like, ah, they're outcasted because they're furries. I was thinking... I guess that, yeah, you could, you would be fair. I was thinking of, like, Hatterful Boyfriend and things like that. And for some reason I was like, that's not being a fairy. I'm, like, trying to, because it's cute, but and also I feel like I'll probably cut that out because I don't want it to seem like I'm hating on fairies. I'm not hating on fairies. Yeah, no, sorry, I was quiet because my brain was literally doing the maths meme of, like, if you're just a bird, not a humanoid bird, are you a fairy? Are you a birdie? <laughs> no, wait, that's the difference between want like um anthropomorph uh wanting to fuck be best bestiality versus ah. being a furry, right? Like whether you are an anth- anthropomorphized animal and thus a furry versus wanting to fuck an actual bird, which is bestiality. bestiality. What if you don't want to Fuck the bird, and you don't want to be in an anime-eyed bird <laughs> sona. You just want to be a pigeon. <laughs> then COVID has hit really hard. <laughs> I don't for any form of escape. <laughs> cut it all. It isn't because I got to the end of that last chapter, and I was like, "Wow, I really thought this was going somewhere." But you only talked about this house and its streets. But then chapter two came and was like, no, 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 don't worry. Like birds of the wild, Jean Valjean had chosen the most deserted spot in which to build his nest. I was like, oh, okay, they're living in 50 slash 52. Okay. Um, yeah, he carries... He's... he's. I had... It's been a long day. <laughs> I couldn't remember when... Jean Valjean was revealed to be the unnamed mysterious man in the yellow coat. I assume it's happened before this point. I think it was right at the end of last time we read. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, I circled Jean Valjean's name. Okay, amazing. So, henceforth, Jean Valjean has a name. Um, (laughs) But it's not Jean Valjean. Oh, well, in this chapter it is. Oh, really? Interesting. Mm. Um, Oh, I guess he's between names right now. Yes. So, in the flesh, Jean Valjean carries Cosette up to this decrepit little house. Um, there's a room sort of already set up and waiting for them. And that's he, like, lays her on. It's, it's just basically a mattress on the floor and, uh, like, two chairs. 
and and a lit candle and he lays her down on the little mattress on the floor and she's asleep uh completely trusting of this man whose name she doesn't know she doesn't know where she is but she just knows that she can trust him and he watches her with a wholly enraptured gaze in which the expression of kindness and tenderness mounted almost to bewilderment <laughs> that's that's very cute i like that mm. uh he kisses her little hand nine months earlier he'd kissed the mother's hand she too having just fallen nine asleep. months earlier he gave birth yeah it was like interesting about the nine months that feels like it we know victor hugo we know it's a choice mm. also interesting that it took him fucking nine months to get here like he was in jail, I guess, prison for Yeah, he months. wasn't he was in jail for a bit. Mm. But yeah, I did have that same moment of like, you took <laughs> suffering a while. <laughs> but yeah, you're right, you're right. You you were you were on that ship for a bit. Yeah. He was, you know, making a dent in the in his leg chain for nine months. Mm. And now they've both been born anew mm. maybe oh yeah not just her but him as well hugo didn't but, say that we um, we said that <laughs> yeah we're the clever ones not hugo <laughs> so yeah after that first night when cosette wakes up she's immediately like oh yes madam oh i'm coming i'm coming springs out of bed looking for her broom before opening her eyes seeing jean valjean's smiling face and <laughs> <laughs> Stood over her smiling. He is just sat next to her smiling. <laughs> but we know he's a kind and benevolent man, and it's not at all creepy, I guess. Um, she's overjoyed that it's actually true, and this is where she is. And uh, she's got her little doll there. She's looking around, she's like, oh, this is such a nice place. It was a dreadful hovel. But she had a <laughs> sense of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. That's also very good. Good. Okay, job. <laughs> B minus. <laughs> uh, and then we get on to chapter three. Happiness and shared misfortune. And this one is about that Jean Valjean had never loved anything. He had never been father, lover, husband or friend. In prison, he was ill-natured, sullen, celibate, ignorant and unsociable. And he's kind of, in Cosette, all the love that he should have felt over his 55 years. Yes, he's 55, confirmed. Uh, Mm. He's kind of channeling it all now in this moment for Cosette, which is why he's kind of so bewildered. He's got so much affection projecting onto this child. Mm. He felt pangs like those of a mother in childbirth. Jot that down. Um, yeah. I, yeah, this is... Yeah, I mean, I've written about this yeah. scene quite a lot because I like that he is... I don't know why my brain can only think of the word ungendered, but that's not entirely what I mean. But it's like a very good scene for someone who wants to write about this character being asexual and aromantic and mm. um, genderqueer in a way. Because he has been stripped of human society. And I know that Victor Hugo isn't actually saying this, but he hasn't learnt gender roles in a way because he has spent 
most of his 55 years um, in prison. Mm. And so a lot of the like formulative development, he he hasn't been in a, in a society that will tell him, well, a father is like this and a mother like is like this and a lover is like this and et cetera, et cetera, to the point where he can be this, he can be the father, brother, mother of Cosette. Mm. And that it's like, it's not critical in that way, in the way that like, you know, Madame Tenardier was like completely like shit on for being very masculine. Yeah. And Monsieur Tenardier was also like, like, like when, when their gender is like, threatened I guess in scare quotes they are seen as negative because they have lived in society and they should know better but I guess because I I think what Victor Hugo is trying to say is that because he doesn't know better he doesn't know better than to to be just a parent to Cosette and to just like he has this unfiltered love Mm. that he's never had an opportunity to give to anyone before and so it comes out in all of these ways because he's not being taught that it should come out in a certain way. I think an interesting, I've been listening to a podcast called Ear Hustle uh, this month, which is um, produced by people in a prison in California. And they do a lot of interviews with the men there who have got life sentences. Some of them who have been in prison since they were 14 and some of them are in their 40s, 50s now. And they're talking about how they don't know how to interact with people who haven't been in prison their entire lives because that's how they grew up. And the only sort of interaction with the outside world is through TV shows. And there was one guy who was basically saying, like, he fantasizes about loads of things that he's seen in rom-coms and like that's such a yeah it's it, it's it's I mean what else can you do when you have been incarcerated yeah. for your entire life apart from like fantasize about the things that you have access to which is rom-coms on tv which is not a healthy way of learning human society yeah. but then even so like they're still learning unhealthy gender norms whereas Jean Valjean because he didn't he wasn't friendly to anyone in in the prison. He also didn't learn unhealthy gender expectations from them either. He came out very insular and what was it? He hated God, he hated himself, and mm. he hated society. But he didn't he didn't so he went very like, yeah, insular. He he wasn't talking to anyone else and he wasn't like forming a gang or like making alliances or anything like that. Yeah, so I, I find it very interesting. And I know that Victor Hugo wasn't being like, so basically the best society would be a society that doesn't treat men and women as different. <laughs> but I like to read it that yeah. way. Yeah, and I like also knowing that's something that interests you so much because it means that whenever I see anything like that, I'm like, oh! <laughs> Whereas I don't know whether or not I would... It would definitely be something to find interesting. But, you know, when it's you know that somebody else is so invested in something, it makes you even more excited to see it. <laughs> like, ah! I, like, drop it at your feet like a dead mouse. 
knowing that you actually found this mouse yourself earlier and I'm just like, look, I found it again. <laughs> I love this analogy of me like purchasing a dead mouse to put in your little cage as like an enrichment activity. <laughs> And then you give it to me and I'm like, good job, you get to eat this mouse now. <laughs> Even if that is the case, I do still feel enriched. <laughs> I also feel enriched because I get to talk about the things that I like because yeah. you do point them out to me. So <laughs> you, on the meta level, are also enriching me. <laughs> are we you all just the... paying dead mice to <laughs> let each other catch? When I think that I'm the one who's hiding the dead mouse in the first place, you're the one who bought the dead mouse on Amazon. <laughs> and then I put it in the garden for you to find. Look, as long as we're all happy. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got that from Jean Valjean, and then Cosette, who can't even really remember her mother, like that she was so young when they were parted. She had tried to love, but like it, all she had was the Tenardiers, their children, other children, a dog that she loved, which then died. So, you know, it was like, God, just a little bit more debt in that wound. Um, but that she had wanted to love. It's not even like, it, it's very sad not even that she's trying to get love back she had been trying to love other things but it's kind of how can you when you're not getting anything and mm. not being shown how so sad to say and this is something we have already suggested at eight years of age she was cold-hearted it was not her fault it was that she it was not that she lacked the capacity to love but had lacked the possibility the possibility to do so so now that she has this, uh, all her thoughts and feelings turned to loving this kind man, now that she has someone who wants to love her and be loved by her, she can actually experience that for the first time. So they're both, in this sort of beginning period, both kind of enraptured by this experience. Mm -hmm. um, and the same way that she had, you know, looked around this hovel of a house and was like, oh, wow, it's so nice here. She found Jean Valjean a fine-looking man, just as she found the hovel lovely. Wow, Victor Hugo, yeah. coming to your OC like this. Yeah, but you were like, I get what you're saying here, but did you not only some chapters ago describe that he's a handsome older man who's swole and has those uh, those humble lips that are a lot more full than they may look thin and stern, but they're for like promise you because <laughs> that just doesn't appreciate manly beauty except she does this fine looking man <laughs> um and then my favorite friend of the podcast destiny <laughs> had crossed this divide between their ages and circumstances with its irresistible power, destiny suddenly united and plighted to each other these two uprooted lives. Cosette's instinct sought out a father, as Jean Valjean's instinct sought a child. He was the bereft parent, and Cosette was the orphaned child. In this, and then, because it's Victor Hugo, <laughs> in this situation, Jean Valjean became in some heavenly way 
because that's father. <laughs> um, the appearance of this man in this child's life was like the advent of God. <laughs> I, this is like so off topic, but I feel like Victor Hugo is trying really hard to put this God stuff in. But even to me, who is doing a PhD in his fucking novel, today spent an entire day in a church looking up at this like huge like mural of Jesus but it was painted in a way that looked like the most coiffed gay man going Mm -hmm. to a club with like a really well-trimmed beard and then the father of the church came in and he introduced himself, and the only thought I had was, oh, a father, like in The Exorcist. <laughs> I love that for you. <laughs> so, Victor Hugo, your destiny, godly, heavenly bodies don't work on me. I'm immune to you. <laughs> You're immune. <laughs> I am not immune to laughing at every instance of, because, like, especially in this chapter, you know, We've just had that nice discussion about, like, Jean Valjean and and gender. And Mm. it's like with many things with, oh, like earlier with with Jean Valjean, where, God, what was happening? That, what thought was he having? You know, you're like, did Jean Valjean think that? Did did Jean Valjean really think that very out-of-character rude thing? Mm -hmm. Or was this... The wife thing. Yeah, that thing of, like, wow, was she ever a virgin? You're like, that's not... Jean Valjean would never. Victor Hugo absolutely would. <laughs> but he can't. It's it just always feels so Victor Hugo to be like, oh, you know, he was like a mother. Duh. But the heavenly father, because fathers are like gods. So you know, um, just saying, you know, I'm a father too. So maybe I'm a bit like God. Yeah. Fuck. I hate. I hate that. I would never have made that connection oh, in my head. I can't stop making that connection. <laughs> Victor Hugo said, but actually the patriarchy, am I right? It's a God-given gift. Meh. Oh. Meh. Does this make your... You you were living in the better world, maybe, before I, <laughs> before I trampled in, like, is it not obvious? But I mean, like, the, the, the thing is, like, with what I want to talk about, I do have to straddle straddle that line of like, I would love to interpret it this way and I'm allowed to interpret it this way. 100% he did not mean it this way. Whereas the like heavenly father stuff is, yeah, he probably did mean it this way. (laughs) But it's also like maybe that I, to me, I'm like, oh yeah, this is Victor Hugo and his big old, God complex, waving that neck around, but maybe those are just the things that I'm not drawn to, absolutely repelled by, but you know, you're like that's what I can't help but super notice Mm-mm. yeah but this, so I was just like, I'm just going to steamroll straight past that anyway well, I mean, the, the thing in my head was, like with every good person with a K-pop bias, we have <laughs> Of the Hugo trope bias. Yeah, literally. <laughs> mm. That that whole like 
his discussion there of the uh, appearance of this man in this child life, advent of God, Victor Hugo, the next line, it literally is, anyway, Jean Valjean had chosen this reference well. That even <laughs> Victor Hugo's like, well, so, anywho. <laughs> Who are they talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, this house. Uh, yeah. Oh, this chapter really is rich in all of the things that we like to think that we'll remember to look out for and he's put it all in this one place we've had what we've had gender we've had uh destiny we've had god complex and now we have unnamed women housekeepers Mm. that other thing yeah there's an old woman who did the housekeeping for jean Valjean. so she's the one who'd set up the lodgings and that's why there was the candle ready and he had told her that he was a gentleman of means ruined by spanish bonds um <laughs> anyway, they were happy. Oh yeah, Jean Valjean starts teaching her how to read, uh Cosette how to read, and he reflected it was with the idea of doing evil that he had learned to read in the prison. This idea had turned into teaching a child to read, and that makes him smile, an angelic, pensive smile. Yeah, I really like that line as well. I wrote about that a little bit. And yeah, I just think it's Nice. <laughs> that Marge Simpson yes, <laughs> meme of like, me, like getting to use something that he almost sort of had to fight for and hadn't intended mm. to use for such a like sweet purpose. Getting to actually use that and enjoy it. Oh yeah, because he's also like he's never enjoyed reading. It's something he felt he should do as a man of a certain station, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, he kind of had to because otherwise people wouldn't find out. Whereas now he gets to, like, mm. pass some knowledge on to someone who doesn't have it. He's, yeah, I feel like po- probably in the, like, giving birth narrative of him, like, giving birth to this child, he is giving her this future as well. Um mm. It's just nice. It's just nice. It's just me. That's just me. But then, sometimes he imagined the kind of gladness that she would be ugly. That, like, he doesn't want to lose her. That you're like, okay, like, I get where you're coming from with that, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And then... I mean, I I, I think, um, but, but at least with this one, like I, I think the Tenardier, the Mrs. Tenardier was never a virgin one. Is just very mean spirited and not what Jean Valjean mm. would think because it doesn't come from anything. It doesn't come from selfishness. It doesn't come from anything like that. It's just like a barbed comment to make a barbed comment yeah. about Madame Tenardier. Whereas this one, it does come in this. Like this is a consistent thing for Jean Valjean going forward now, where he has to keep on battle, keep battling with his his doing good for God and for the Bishop Muriel mm. um, versus his selfish desire to like finally get something for himself and yeah. like and and you know he, he keeps being like the one thing the one good thing I have in my life is Cosette and I have to fucking give her up to this chump Marius no fucking way <laughs> And like mm. the entire time, like with the like going to Arras, the the when he was like 
uh, gonna you know give himself up and being like the entire way being like why should I have to give myself up I'm not like blah 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 I've done good this is the only good thing in my life blah blah I've never done bad and like the entire time he was like riding really hard trying his hardest to get there I think in the same way with the like oh I really wish she's I really wish that she's ugly and all these kind of things it does humanize him in the way that we were saying with the bishop yeah. Mariel. like it's really nice to see that he is a human being who has selfish human thoughts and still chooses to do the good thing anyway um yeah, yeah. like it does make complete sense like it's only at this point with like the love of Cosette that he's like oh I can imagine living to be old as long as I have her so mm. yeah it, it, I do agree that that's not a Victor Hugo interjection <laughs> yeah. but speaking of Victor Hugo interjections the last <laughs> paragraph here like just whenever Victor Hugo's on his strongest Victor Hugo it just like <laughs> Pickles me to my core because, like, at this point, we're what three hundred ninety-eight pages in. He's like, he's not an old friend. He's mm. an old something that you're like, ah, uh-huh. you just like know him so well. And this paragraph begins. This is only a personal opinion. Ugh. This is only a personal opinion. But to speak <laughs> our mind in full, at the stage Jean Valjean had reached, where he began to love Cosette. We have yet to be convinced he did not need this encouragement to preserve, persevere in his efforts to lead a good life. And it's just that oh, framing Jesus of Christ. like, this is just a personal opinion. But, you know, I, I must speak my full mind. I <laughs> must have you know, reader, what it is that I think. Not that that's what you have to think, but know that is what I think. <laughs> the writer that you're like so that is what we should be thinking you were saying um and like the point is true like true and that you're like yeah this is a good read person who must give their opinion that yeah but at this point before getting Kazak, you know he's had to go back to jail he's had to give up the like position that he had in the town before um he'd had a limited perspective the that inevitably revealed only one side of the truth. The fate of women represented by Fontaine, the public authority personified by Javert. That was a discussion we all got into a lot of, is he personified? Yeah. Is he personified here? And then I just had read you all the chapter where Victor Hugo was like, he's 100% perso- the personification right now. Um, but, but yeah, so that at this point, Jean Valjean did need to have Cosette in his life to fill him with this love to keep him on the path with, that the bishop set him on. That like the memory of what the bishop did for him was already beginning to fade a little bit, and he was losing heart a bit. But like now he's completely one hundred percent like no, gonna protect her, um, gonna do good. Just that framing of it, you're like you didn't have you didn't have to say it like that. We got it. We understood it. Like the Hugo, like <laughs> we we were there already. <laughs> We've been here the whole time. <laughs> we were following. We didn't need you to like hammer the point home. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Brain just completely shut off. Then 
Um, well, we don't need to think thoughts. Victor Hugo will provide us with the times that we should be thinking thoughts so and what right. those thoughts should I, be. <laughs> I was, yeah, I feel like I was about to segue into a closing thoughts thing, but yeah, you're right. I don't need to do that. Victor Hugo has told us Jean Valjean was was verging, nearing, nearing, going back on his thing, but Cosette came at the right time. And so that's the only thing that we can take from this chapter. The end. That is, of course, only a personal opinion. <laughs> of course, that was only a personal opinion. We just must speak our mind in full. <laughs> we just must speak our mind in full. <laughs> I like this read, which is kind of like Victor Hugo has been um, kidnapped by an alien <laughs> and has to do the like, fellow humans, I am speaking today as myself and not <laughs> as a foreign body to you all. In hello, my hello, personal man. opinion, <laughs> I believe that we should all give up our right to freedom. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this has been Red Barricades, the Lamest Podcast, produced by me, Nemo Martin, and Julian Yan. And this was just my personal opinion. You should give us a review on iTunes. Not that I'm telling you to do it or anything, but in my personal opinion, <laughs> it does help us. And if you do, send us a screenshot to our email lamospodcast, l-e-s-m-i-s-podcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at lamospodcast or to our Tumblr at Bread and Barricades. This is just my personal opinion, but if you did like this podcast, you can donate to our Ko-fi or to our Patreon. And you should, in my personal opinion, go and download our theme tune from Jade's website jdwasabi.com or from her bandcamp jdwasabi.bandcamp.com but only if you must speak your mind <laughs> and that's all but that's just my personal opinion <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening never has a title of an episode presented it itself <laughs> So boldly. <laughs> Usually I like to pick the, the titles from like the first 10 minutes because I'm like, oh, but spoilers. <laughs> but I guess we've got to wait until one hour into the podcast and know what it's about.